Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a copy of Tudor Mystery, the Master of the Countess of Warwick. Published recently to accompany the exhibition, Tudor Mystery, A Master Painter Revealed. The lucky winner will also receive a portrait miniature of Thomas Nivett. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly talks that take place live on Zoom. This weekend, I'll be chatting to O'Leary Lynn about Tudor textiles and fashion. Head over to my Patreon if you'd like to join us. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would absolutely love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about mudlarking is Alessio Kekoni. Alessio is an Italian micropaleontologist currently living in London. He's currently working as a business developer for the acquisition of subsurface geological data in African and Middle Eastern countries. Alessio spends most of his spare time mudlarking along the foreshore of the River Thames in central London. He has found several artifacts over the years, ranging from prehistoric tools to modern items. Recently, he unearthed a rather rare, well-preserved late medieval to early Tudor archer's wrist guard made of tooled leather, with metal decorations still preserved. It's currently being restored by the Museum of London. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Alessio. How are you? Hi, good morning. I'm very well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm really, really excited to chat with you today. So I thought we could start by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Well, my name is Alessio Cecconi. I am Italian, as you will get to know me from the accent. <laughs> I am a micropaleontologist. This is my background. I studied at University of Perugia and there I did my PhD. I, I was a lecturer there and I, I had this passion for rocks and fossils and really past history and evolution. And this is why I went through this career path. And 13 years ago, you know, I moved to London. I, since then, I published papers on paleontology and so on. So you might be wondering, so why are you here <laughs> talking to this? Because a few years ago, uh, I started walking along the foreshore of the River Thames in London, where I live. Uh, it was at the very beginning of the pandemic. We couldn't walk much and we had to be around our neighborhood. So I was walking and I noticed some little items in between the pebbles. I collected them and you know, I went home and my researcher soul uh, started Googling things, discovered that there was pieces of clay pipes from the 18th century. And, you know, since then I got hooked right away. I came back almost every day. Uh, I got a permit right away. And, uh, and I've been discovering since then several artifacts, including you know, many Tudor ones. So I'm no historian. Uh, in terms of education, but uh, since then, you know, you read, you discover, and I've I've learned that you know that is a great way of of learning and getting passionate about. Absolutely, what a wonderful background! And so it's called mudlarking. I love that name, mudlarking. It is. So so you've told us a little bit about how you first became involved, but what what is it that keeps you going? Because you've obviously now been doing it for a few years. Uh, yep. What is it that you love about it? At the beginning, I kept going back to the river because um, it was the only time of the day where I could leave the house. You know, you were housebound, uh, always thinking about the pandemic, not knowing what was happening with your family and friends. And I really discovered the moment of going in the river was a moment of quiet. Funny enough, you know, the, the foreshore of the Thames has these high walls, four, five, six, seven meters. They are perfect sound barriers. So you don't hear the cars. Anyway, there were no many during COVID. There were no planes. And all you can hear were just waves and seagulls and the occasional seal. You can see dolphins. Um, it was that's this like oasis, this little holiday that you could take. And that was a great way of uh, stay calm and staying focus during those years of pandemic and after that a bit of um sort of like addiction started i i call it addiction but in a good way you know there is no downsides apart of the fact that you spend most of your spare time there um, but i kept going back because it's it's almost like a russian roulette you know you roll and you wait you never know what you get sometimes you come home with nothing sometimes you come home with something amazing uh you see other people on social media finding things and that's another thing that says oh wow look at that i i want to find something like that i want to discover the next rare object uh, and you know it's not just about that at the same time you know it's not about discovering gold it's not about necessarily discovering treasures or something of value it, it's really discovering something that speaks to us and in fact talking to my other mudlarking friends we all have have a um, different favorite thing to find, which is rarely uh, something expensive or something that is precious and, you know, money-wise, money but it's something that really speaks to us because of our history, because of our sensitivity, uh, you know, just because of the material and, and, and we like this sort of item. Yeah, it sounds so wonderful. And it sounds how you described it, they're very peaceful as well. I, I love the sound of that. So 
Tell us a little bit about the history of mud larking. I know it's been going on for a little while. When and why did people kind of start scouring the the banks of the Thames? So, you know, we have historical records that tell us roughly when it started. And and that's, you know, we, we can base our assumptions on that. But I believe that people started mudlarking since they walked on the foreshore. <laughs> and it was probably just collecting, you know, a piece of flint or anything. Because mudlarking per se, as a term today, is referred to as, you know, a mudlark is a, a scavenger of the foreshore looking for objects of interest uh, and looking for artifacts. Now, objects of interest changed uh, the meaning through times. And and in literature, really, we have the first use of the word mudlarking at the end of the 18th century, when we, you know, they they talk about these people, usually uh, very poor and usually young, usually male. However, also, you know, girls or, or women have been mentioned, and they had to walk on the foreshore really for, uh, to survive. They were probably looking for a piece of copper, for a piece of coal that would have fallen from a ship that was delivering coal to London, and then they would resell it. And there are stories throughout the Victorian literature, so late 1700s, and then throughout the 1800s, we really find it in the literature. And there is also an interesting interview, which is called Narrative of a Mudlark in 1851, that I think it was written by Henry Mayhew, um, where you know he interviews a, a boy, a 13-year-old boy, and they start talking about what he does. And you know he, this boy supported his whole family, he was the only one bringing some pennies at home. He had no shoes. So these people very often had to walk on sheds of pottery of glass that would get cut. Let's not forget that during those days, the Thames was extremely polluted and there was raw sewage that was coming from the city consistently. So many of them would die. It was a very harsh, harsh life. But I mentioned, you know, I believe people started doing malarking from from the beginning of of London history. We find artifacts that date all the way back to the Mesolithic talking about uh, 9,000 to 4,500 years ago. Incredible. And you have this, it's fantastic. There are some areas of the foreshore that clearly were areas where these men stopped by for a while. Probably they were hunting there, they were fishing. The Mesolithic was that period in history where we go from the Paleolithic, where they were mostly hunters, to the Neolithic, where they become, became settlers and they would start farming properly. So, you know, probably those areas of the foreshore where we find this accumulation of flint, worked flint, were areas where they would stop occasionally before moving somewhere else and then going back. And, and of course, the Thames of the time was much different from today. It was much shallower and it was much, much wider. Uh, there were swamps. Uh, it was quite a wild environment. I, I, it's quite fascinating. There are, you know, pieces of rhinos that have been found, these big cats, Ursus Peleus, so the big cave bear. You know, mm. it was a dangerous place at times, probably very muddy. You could get trapped in it. Definitely a fascinating place. And, uh, you know, so the... the, the I would say the late Georgian times are when mudlarking officially started. However, this was my perception until a, probably a month ago, where uh, a friend of mine, uh, Malcolm Russell, which is also the author of one of the latest books on mudlarking, Mudlarked, posted a research he's done. And uh, I mean, he's an historian, so he goes really reading documents and finding this, all these amazing, amazing details. And he's found a 1739 trial record 
of a man, which is called Edward Goins. And he was accused of it, like it's a long story, he was accused of murdering his wife, Mary. And in this trial record, they have several um, records also of the witnesses and what they were saying. And one of their friends and neighbors was called Katerina. You know, she described uh, how Mary looked like and what was her condition before she was murdered. And she said that she was she had a broken arm because she was going shoring. And then she's asked her what it was. And she says, well, she was picking up what she could find because uh, she was poor. So she would walk along the shore and probably bring home something for like wood or coal. So probably, you know, shoring was actually mudlarking. And again, so we go back into the very early Georgian times before we thought. I'm sure that before, during Tudor times, for example, people were going down uh, the foreshore and, and collecting items. That is so fascinating. I love to imagine what the Thames would have looked like in all those changes that it went through. That's really extraordinary. And so when you are, you're walking the banks of the Thames and you're doing your mudlarking, are you using any equipment or is it mainly just really looking carefully at where you're going? So uh, it's a combination of things. The first thing is in order to um, be able to mudlark, you know, you need a permit. And when you get a permit from the Port of London Authority, they tell you exactly where you can walk and what you can do in each section of the foreshore. Uh, because in order to search, you know, most of the foreshore of the Thames is owned by somebody. Most of it is owned by the PLA in the central part of London. So they tell you the rules. And in some areas, we can literally just walk and look because those areas are called eyes only and no surface disturbance. So you really go there and you cannot even move a pebble. And it could be for uh, security reasons based on the location. It could be because it's an archaeological area. But there are other areas where uh, with standard permits, we're allowed to scrape down to three inches, which is hardly necessary unless you find something like a bottle that is stuck in it or a shoe. Uh, maybe we will talk about it. I'm a bit obsessed with shoes, <laughs> finding shoes. So it depends. So we go there. We look down. In addition, again, depends on the size of the items you're trying to uh, search, what you're going to do. So if you're looking for something large, piece, pieces of pottery, you can walk. And therefore, you can almost wear a pair of boots or even a pair of trainers because most of the foreshore in central London is kind of pebbly, so you don't sink. If you decide to look for little pieces of metal, beads, something much smaller, then you kind of need to gear up because at least I need to be face down, <laughs> really close to the shore and, and, and see these small objects. So I usually wear knee pads. I wear like high wellies, no matter how high they are. You're always tricked by the waves and they get wet. So you get a wave that covers you down to your waist, <laughs> up to your waist. Um, I wear, I don't know, jeans or like impermeable trousers. And then, you know, something light uh, keeps you warm. You want mobility. You want to be able to move around. You want to be able to run if a wave comes and always bring something impermeable because I guarantee in the sunniest day in England, as we know, <laughs> it's going to rain at a certain point in time. Absolutely. Now, I want to ask you about your favorite finds, but I also want to ask you about any Tudor artifacts that you found. So I'll let you decide how you answer those two questions. I mean, this question is so difficult to answer because yeah. um, there are anything from fossils to prehistoric finds to, uh, you know, like 
the rest are probably it ranges in central London between I'd say Iron Age to so just before uh, you know the first century to today's you know we find modern rubbish so it's hard to say that object is my favorite mm-hmm. what speaks to me more than anything and probably actually my favorite favorite find probably because the last exceptional one it is a Tudor find <laughs> by <Perfect>. Queen. <laughs> and it is a an archer uh, wrist guard. It's made of leather. It's octagonal in shape. And uh, I absolutely love it. And it's at the moment with the Museum of London for restoration because the, it's tooled and it has decorations of shells and flowers and crosses. And not only that, he has metal mounds in the shape of flowers. It's probably brass. And they were the, the mounds where the leather straps would be attached and that would keep the object around the, the arm of the archer. So it has been dated um, 1450, so just before the Tudors, but up to 1550. So it, it really goes into the period. There are few equivalent ones. And the reason why it's so well dated, even if they haven't done any isotopes analysis of carbon uh, on it, is because analogs have been found in archaeological sites. And one of the most incredible archaeological sites is the Mary Rose, you know, the ship that sunk. Exactly, in, in the 1500s. And like uh, a time freeze, everything that was on the boat sank down and was preserved. And one uh, wristband, exactly like that one, has been found uh, on the Mary Rose. So we know the age is very similar. Interestingly, it doesn't have metal mounts. So mine, in a way, is a bit exceptional because it preserves not just the leather, but the, the metal. And the Museum of London explained that it's quite rare to find these metal items with the original leather. Because when a leather object uh, was deteriorating, would break or anything like this, they would throw away the leather and then keep the metal to melt it again and reuse it for something else. So there is a possibility that this object was lost while it was used. And it was not on purpose, you know, thrown in the river. And this is another of these kind of like thrills when we go mudlarking. You find an object and you research about it, you discover what it is. And then you start thinking, how did he end up in the river? You know, you find uh, wedding rings and you think, well, somebody maybe was just playing with it and fell or it was a broken heart. And they just wanted to forget about the lover. And maybe someone died. And for them, that was you know, a goodbye to the lover. We find sealed bottles with messages. And my friend um, Tommy found this this message of this woman saying the last words to the husband. And it's absolutely heartbreaking because it's such a tiny sealed bottle. I'm sure she would have never expected someone to find it. And it's so personal that, you know, you almost feel bad about reading it. But at the same time, you enter in a world that is so moving and so personal. And, you know, sometimes objects speak that loudly about something because there are words, so you can read about them. Some other times they don't have as much evidence of what the person that owned them looked like or was feeling like, but maybe you have hints in the object itself. I I mentioned before I am obsessed with leather shoes (laughs) uh, that in the river, not in real life. (laughs) And, you know, I found this little uh, Victorian child shoe and you, of course, you can't tell who the person that was wearing it was, but, you know, I cleaned it, I restored it. And then you start looking at details and you start to get to know the person that lost it. For example, one side of the shoe, the internal side is much, much more braided and consumed than the external one. 
you know, during those times, uh, during Victorian times, um, the uh, diet was not good at all. They could not afford decent food and many children had rickets. So they had bent legs. And therefore, if they were wearing shoes and they were walking around, they would uh, consume the soul in a different way. So that's, you know, first hint and um, evidence you find about the owner. And then, you, you know, I've noticed that although the soul is very small, the rest of the shoes is very stretched, especially the toe was poking out almost to break the shoe. And you can think, well, maybe the family was quite poor. This child had to wear the shoe until really could fit until the very last day. And then he had to give it up, probably throw it away because nobody else in the family needed it. And or maybe it was a mudlark because, again, in Victorian times, especially between these poorer classes, they would give you know, whatever you owned, if you didn't need it anymore, you would give it to the person next to you. So the shoes is actually in good condition. And maybe the child was walking on the foreshore looking for artifacts himself or herself and lost it. And again, you start thinking, you know, there are, I don't know, dog collars that have been lost. And again, a friend of mine, Mark, found this dog collar with the address in central London. So he tracked back through the census, the person that owned it. Guess what? He managed to find a descendant. He found this person and says, well, I found your great-great-grandmother dog collar. The dog was called this way. Did you know that your grandmother had a, you know, that your ancestor had a dog? He's like, I had no idea. And you create connection in the modern world. I don't know. It's and this is why, again, it's hard in a way to say what's, what's your favorite find, because sometimes it's just something that speaks to you. You know, it's the story of the person that fascinates you and, and all of a sudden becomes um, something moving that you can stop, can't stop thinking about. Yeah, I, I love so much of what you've said. I love the, the stories and the connections. And that's why I think objects are so special, aren't they? Because they are kind of keepers of these stories, even, you know, long gone, the owners are long gone. But that's still there as a reminder that they were once here. And yeah. I'm just thinking about the archer. I'm thinking, did he fall in as well? Was he in the Thames as well at some point, perhaps? But they're all such interesting, fascinating stories. I love it. So what about an item that you found that is curious or unusual? I know lots of things turn up in the Thames. So what have you found there? One item that really opened up, uh, again, another a complete new world, is a little fairy ring. And this this insignificant pewter cast ring with a little star on it. When I found it, I thought, oh, you know, it's no gold. It's just it's just something, uh, not much value. And then, um, again, it was checked by the Museum of London. And these fairy rings, specifically with kind of these specific marks, were made as gifts and, and toys during uh, the Frost Fairs in London. And the Frost Fairs, I, I mentioned earlier that the Thames was very different in the past of what is today. Today, we have the embankment that makes the Thames much narrower and deeper. Therefore, the current is faster. And even when the temperature goes below zero, it hardly freezes. It doesn't freeze. But before, um, it would freeze. And there, there are evidence up to the 19th century of the Thames freezing, completely freezing, so that you could walk on it, you could build on it, tents, you could bring animals on it. And the Thames, during this frost phase, will become a proper festival uh, location where you would go down and enjoy for even a month, a circus, uh, trades, and, and so on. And this little ring is quite unusual because you it's completely unassuming. And yet it opens up this world of wonders and, and, and magic that, again, you can hardly imagine. You know, imagine to have a festival on a frozen sort of river in the middle of your city. 
animals and people chatting and it's it just so evocative you find modern stuff that we consider like weird we i found a machete uh, that was disposed and of course everything that is a weapon you need to call the police right. everything that is human rest you need to call the police you know i don't know a python uh, skin has been found so probably a pet that was thrown back into the river by jason sandy we find all sorts of bizarre things because the thames has really been the accidental location where people would lose things but there's also been the place where people would hide things on purpose and would you know would get rid of things or just the trash of the thames when there were no other way of getting rid of items you wanted to, to dispose of um, so it, it is it is a mix of uh, incredible objects. And so what happens with the objects that you find and that you take with you? What happens to them after that? So we take them home. And uh, uh, again, as part of our permit with the Port of London Authority, whenever we find an object of some archaeological value, we either need to report it as part uh, of the Treasure Act of 1996. So if it's 200, 300 years old, and provide some insight into the country's heritage, you need to report it as a treasure. But we also report it when it has some value or some archaeological or historical value. So what we do is we email the find liaison officer at the Museum of London. And, you know, this person is helping us understanding if what we found is actually something of interest. And if it is, we bring it to the Museum of London and the find gets recorded in uh, an archive that is called Portable Antiquities Scheme. And anybody can visit it. You go online and you have over, if I'm correct, something like one and a half million artifacts that have been recorded. I've lost by... a lot of hours there, Alessio. Lots of hours gone <laughs> searching. Isn't it incredible? <laughs> you can search by period, by material, by a name in the description. So if you're interested in like a medieval like monk, you know, you go there, it's like medieval monk, bang, and you have rings with a picture of a medieval monk, you have pieces of glass with the face of it. It's an incredible tool for researchers, for historians, or just amateurs that can, you know, explore the heritage. And also the objects are um, geo-referenced, so you can understand where they were found. And if you want to find trends, maybe you find, I don't know about, I'm thinking about Roman artifacts. Each type of pottery was coming into London, if it was not made in London, from different routes. So if you see where the sheds of this that type of pottery are found, you can really almost map the route where these objects were transported and, and imported from. So it's absolutely invaluable. And, uh, you know, today there are 5,000 mudlarks with permits. So the uh, finds liaison officer is swamped with finds. I, I've managed to see him a couple of times a year. Uh, you, you know, you collect your finds, you keep them on the side, and he tells you, yes, please, next time, bring that, bring that. And you go and visit him. And because there are so many mudlarks at the moment, the Port of London has decided to temporarily pause the issuing of per new permits. But we can, whoever has a permit can renew it, but there are no new permits at the moment. They will be uh, issued again at a certain point, and they will notify it on the website. However, you know, if someone has never mudlarked and is either visiting London or is a Londoner and, you know, has never heard of this, is like, oh, what, how can I experience it? Well, it's still possible. And that, that's the good news because there are a few charities. And one is the Thames Discovery Program and another one is the Thames Explorer Trust. 
these are charities where it's a mix of historians and volunteers that are very successfully raising awareness of the River Thames and through educational activities, exhibitions, talks, and videos. So if you visit their website, you have the chance to book a tour with them. And they usually go on the foreshore with an expert for two, three, four hours. Uh, they explain beforehand what you can find. When you find something, you can show it to them. And uh, it becomes a collective search and hunt experience. So oh, very often we meet them on the foreshore and they say, hey, what did you find? And we start exchanging, you know, well, opening up pockets and say, well, this is it. And, and, and it's always so fascinating to meet people that by accident have discovered this hobby or this activity and are fascinated and they discover for the first time the passion for history because this is actually my case you know you'd think as a paleontologist you know i for sure loved history i think that history and latin were my least favorite subjects in high school believe it or not i had the worst marks on them and there was no way for my teacher to make me fall in love with it it was lots of dates, which I don't like memorizing just for the sake of it. And so it was really with mudlarking that the process of learning history uh, is completely inverted. It's not you making an effort to read a book, to read and learn about something that is far from you, but it's history that comes to you <laughs> in front of you that you can hold, you can touch, you can turn, you can investigate. And therefore it becomes your interest immediately. And, you know, you find um, medieval artifacts, you find a coin from Elizabeth I, you find a trader's token from 1666. You go and research and it's like, oh, that's a date when there was a fire in London. And it's called the Great Fire of London. And then you read and all of a sudden, you it's like if you feel, um, you know, you have a, an empty box and you start putting little pieces, which at the beginning don't touch each other because they're really small. <laughs> but at the end of the day, once you find all these objects, you know, you fill the gaps and all of a sudden history becomes this big box of objects that are connected in terms of time, are connected in terms of consequences and, and history start talking to you. At least it started talking to me after 40 years of silence. Isn't that wonderful that history reached out to you? I absolutely love that. I love it. And so I know from looking at your posts and photos that you post on Instagram, a fantastic account and some other mudlarkers, that many times these objects are so well preserved. That is kind of the shocking thing. It looks like they just literally went into the Thames yesterday. So why is that, that items are so, so beautifully preserved in the Thames? So the Thames is this magical museum box, again, <laughs> because uh, the, the main feature that allows artifacts to be well-preserved is the fact that it's anoxic. The mud, at least in it, is anoxic. Anoxic means there's no oxygen. And the, the sediment is anoxic when you have a lot of organic matter and the bacteria that wants to eat the organic matter and digest it as they do, you know, as a carcass, as a paleontologist. The paleontologist in me is now coming out, <laughs> you know, like, like for fossils, you know, if an animal dies and it stays uh, unburied, you know, bacteria, scavengers would eat it and quite quickly it would deteriorate and you get only the bones left. But if you put it in an anoxic environment with no oxygen, the bacteria that would eat and deteriorate the organic matter cannot exist are not present and therefore the material remains as it is in great conditions. The same things happen to uh, iron, not only to organic matter, because for iron to rust, you need oxygen. And if you take iron in an oxygen-deprived environment, 
the ion just get preserved, even if there is water. The issue comes from the moment oxygen reaches the object. So the fact that mudlarks are there daily collecting items is extremely important because by finding an object, you allow the time of oxygen exposure before being restored to be as short as possible. You know, shoes, I found some shoes that are Tudor, some pieces of medieval shoes, and they are extremely well preserved. And next to them, I found some pieces of leather that would be poking out, possibly from the same period. And these pieces that were poking out that I didn't have to extract from the mud were much thinner and much more fragile. And by the time I took them home and I washed them, they you know, would flake away. And that's just because probably they were exposed to the oxygen probably for, I don't know, two, three, four weeks without being treated at all. And therefore they start deteriorating. So the fact that there is no oxygen is vital and allows all these incredible artifacts to to be preserved. And the other thing that the anoxic mud does is providing what is called the Thames gilding, which again, for anybody that has collected some brass on the foreshore uh, is, is a marvel. You find pins, buttons, uh, coins made of brass that are yellow gold, beautifully shining. And very often at the beginning, I was tricked. I would find a buckle and think, oh, there's amazing gold. And then I would go home and clearly realize it's brass. And, and, the, and that's the reaction that the brass has with the anoxic mud. And changes from being that dull, you know, brown brass color or orange color into a beautiful gold. And again, the same happens to glass. We find, if you're lucky enough, you find an onion bottle, you know, a Georgian beautiful wine bottle in the Thames. They are extremely rare. And another mother, like Nicola White, uh, she found two. And one the day I was there, and I had the pleasure to hear her screaming and extracting it. But again, what the mud does to glass is not only preserving it from being squished, but also create uh, iridescence. And again, it's a permanent iridescence on the surface of the glass. And that's simply the reaction of the silica and oxygen that makes the glass with all the elements in the anoxic mud. They react and therefore the glass gets altered chemically and it gets this amazing, amazing iridescence, all the colors of the rainbow when you turn and flip your bottle. And that's something that, uh, if I'm correct, during Victorian times, they try to recreate it artificially. And, you know, they try in several ways and it can be recreated. You can mimic it, but you can tell that it's kind of man-made the beautiful iridescence given by you know centuries of slow contact in the Thames mud, it's, it's not possible to be done artificially. It's just a gift that history gives us, you know, with patience and, and with luck. Amazing, absolutely amazing. And given this rich history and these amazing treasures that are kept in the Thames, you've talked about this a little bit, but just tell us a little bit more about the rules and the regulations that are in place to protect, obviously, this just incredible stuff. Yeah, so it, it is very important that to have a permit, and I keep going on and on about the permit, because if you don't have a permit, you don't know, first of all, what, what to do with what you find. You don't know the value of it, and you may pocket it and take it at home thinking it's not a big deal. But, you know, I, I've, I've experienced myself, tourists, just being on the foreshore, picking up something, and it was a coin or a trader's token with a date and something that was not found before. And, you know, we, they show it to us saying, is, is this important? And if they didn't meet us, you know, they would probably just pocket it, take it back to their homes. And that piece of history that is important to reconstruct, the history of the city, the history of the United Kingdom, you know, it gets lost. So it is important to have a permit because you know what to do with what you find. 
It's also important to have a permit because it allows it allows the Port of London Authority and the archaeologist and the Museum of London to monitor the activity and make sure that the river is not compromised. So the reason why they've stopped these permits uh, is mostly to assess if the mudlarking activity affects the foreshore in any way. It affects the animals living on it, the plants, you know, if it affects the sediment. And it's it's a study that will take a bit of time. Probably they don't really change the foreshore aspects because if you consider the amount of waves from the clippers, if you consider the much harsher action of other objects, you know, like people walking on the foreshore are no big deal. Uh, but they just want to have some time to understand if it has any impact. So they want to preserve that as well. And it's important to have a permit in any way to get informed when you go on the foreshore because some areas are dangerous per se. So you can get trapped by the incoming tide and therefore, you need to call the police and they need to pick you up. And we, again, we witnessed this happening. I had to carry an old lady on my back because she was with, with a family. They sat down in an area that, you know, it looked safe and all the rest. But both corners got cut out and they had, you know, a little child and they kind of waded through the water. You know, you the, the, the water can come back in the very predictable but occasionally unpredictable tidal temps too fast so you need to be aware of where you are but again it is possible today to experience mudlarking with the charities i've mentioned before so everybody can still experience it and we just need to be respectful of the owners of the foreshore and what they think is best to preserve its conditions, its history, and overall to make mudlarking something that is enjoyable for us and at the same time, you know, useful for future generations as a slow building of our past. Well, that sounds absolutely wonderful. I definitely want to give it a go with one of those tours next time I'm in London. I've been <laughs> wanting to do it for a long time, but I've never, never done it just yet. Um, so I'll put links to those charities that you've been talking about and the tours for all our listeners. It's been so fascinating hearing about all of this, but I can't let you go just yet. There is another thing we do at the end of episodes, <laughs> and that's what I just call a game of 10 to go. So basically questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one, if you could travel any Anywhere in the world, where would you go? Oh, that's an easy one for me. Galapagos. Ah, the Galapagos. <laughs> Lovely. I go there because of the, um, you know, that's where Darwin traveled to. And that's where he had the first intuition about evolution, observing birds and the iguanas and so on. And and I would love to go there. Actually, a mudlark friend of mine, Giovanni, is now there with his wife. Wow. <laughs> and yesterday I texted her saying, would you like to do mudlarking? He's like, well, actually, I'm in the Galapagos. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that is my <laughs> dream destination. It's a location that has an historical value. It's, it was the trigger for the much better understanding we have today about how organisms have changed through time. And although what Darwin discovered was something very preliminary and inaccurate, you know, it was really the spark that lit the fire of the research in the field. So absolutely my top destination. Wonderful. Well, you didn't have to think about that one, so that's good. Um, no. <laughs> so apart from mudlarking, we're going to have to take mudlarking out. What is something that brings you joy? Decorating cakes. I have like these waves of hobby interest that come, usually last six months and then they disappear. And there are a couple of them that have lasted, you know, up to today. I love cake decorating and I do it 
not often because I don't have much time. Uh, I travel a lot for work. I spend most of my time in the river when I can. But for birthdays and so on, I like to make gory cakes for Halloween. I like to make, you know, personalized cakes that are kind of reflecting some real objects. It could be like a pile of sweaters I did for a friend, a camera, a zombie, you know, whatever, whatever kind of can create a reaction. Oh, it's I love that. that You'll have to share some pictures with us. I will. I will. It's very, it's like malarking. When you bake a cake and you start decorating, you get lost in it. Mm-hmm. And it's very mindful. I kind of like all these activities that are mindful. Drawing as well, live drawing. I like to switch off every now and then. And what about any pets? Or maybe you travel too much for pets? Well, uh, my partner has a pet. It's called Sid. And he's sitting next to me. It's an 18-year-old cat. It was extremely independent. It was a, a stray cat. And for 16 years, nobody could almost touch him. And then I arrived and was like, nope, I'm going to change you. So I started petting him and then like putting on my lap. And he was a bit reluctant at first. But now I'm the only person. He is, wants to be on the lap and he likes to be cuddled. Uh, so he's, he's finally accepted. Either, I, either he's accepted the compromise or he's given up. He's given he, up. <laughs> he will do it. Lovely. And what about the last film or series that you watched? I've re-watched Schitt's Creek. Oh, yes. That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's wonderful. It's um, the, the first series, it was almost not like fun to watch. And then a friend said, go ahead. And I think the characters in it are wonderful. It, it's a way for educating people about, you know, love and all its forms. And I think it's just a level of innocence, purity and beauty while it's being funny and emotional, that is just genius. And what about if you could meet anyone in the world, doesn't matter if they're living or not at the moment, who would that be? I'm going to sound like a teenager. (laughs) That's okay. That's good. (laughs) It's Julia Roberts. Oh, Julia Roberts. I love it. (laughs) I have this sort of like morbid obsession for her as a as a like as a person i completely idealize her i don't know as a teenager i loved her i've met her three times once by coincidence i went for an interview in california for a paleontology role and after a field trip of i was all muddy i went to the cinema still with mud on and there was a little queue and it's like what are you doing and they say well we're queuing because there is a movie of a new director and she's the niece of julia roberts so julia roberts is here and, and I was in front of her with no people around, covered in mud and dust. And it was very unflattering. But yeah, she, she's, she's just a cool personality that I like to, to meet. What is your favorite way to spend a, say, Friday or Saturday night? That's a good question. I would say theater. I am a theater fan. In fact, tonight I'm going to see a musical in London, the Rocky Horror oh. Picture Show. <laughs> oh, wonderful. It's either that or having people uh, over for dinner. Because I like cooking and I like just being social. And that's a nice way of ending the week and kicking off a weekend. You obviously live in London. You know, there's so many um, wonderful things there. But what's something that you really love about living there? It's the opportunities, probably. Probably what I like is the having opportunity to do a bit of everything. You have the countryside at your doorstep. You can go hiking, you can go swimming, you can go to a museum. And I don't know if we realize how lucky we are to have free museums, which is quite uncommon for the rest of the world. And, you know, on a boring, rainy Sunday, you can go out and get in and decide today I'm going to learn about 
art or you can roll the dice and go and see a tiny museum where there is something so unusual you've never heard of and yet discover another piece of the world you didn't know about i think i think london is exceptional for this uh, he has a bit of everything and it's has the range from being inexpensive or free to very expensive always have got something that could engage with you and just make you feel that you're learning, that you are growing, that you are being entertained, but in a in a more meaningful way, if it makes sense. It sure does. And lucky last, what is a really great piece of advice that you've been given in your life that you would have mind sharing with us? Be kind to yourself. We think we do. I thought I did. <laughs> and then I realized that I, you know, you, you're not. And sometimes you do more things for others than you do for yourself. And that for me has been an advice that I keep remembering and reminding myself because then uh, you do a favor, not just to yourself, but to everybody. I think it's RuPaul, right? That says, if you don't love yourself, how the hell are you going to have, have love somebody else? It says it's a funny quote, but it's absolutely true. It's a good thing to remember. Absolutely, it sure is. And the very last thing, and I'll let you get on with your day, is our Tudor takeaway. And basically, you've already given us lots of things to go and look at, but basically it's something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? I do. So, uh, well, as a madlarch, I look at Tudor history in terms of artifacts mostly. So the book I like to recommend is called Buckles by Ross Whitehead. And he has lots of photographies and pictures and description of buckles from 1250 to 1800. But he has a very, very good section on Tudor buckles, which I keep finding uh, this year for some reason. In the last six months, I found four of them. And one is absolutely incredible with this beautiful Tudor rose on it. So I recommend it because you can really, again, see what objects and what was the fashion at the time. And rather than seeing in a painting, which I like to do in museums, you see it in, in real life. And, and it's, good. it's good to scroll through. Plus, if you are a mudlark, that's an essential book to have. Thank you so much. That is wonderful. And a takeaway we haven't had in 200 episodes. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. And this has been such a wonderful discussion. I've really thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much for talking Tudors and mudlarking with us. It's been such a pleasure to uh, to meet you and to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So it's uh, I'm quite chuffed. And thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>